John? Go ahead, brother. Uh, Y'all go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke 13. While you turn there, uh, I know we gave announcements beforehand. I don't want to give them again. But please see me after church if you want to go to Matamoros. Uh, and then you got the prayer requests and some of those things. Our message this morning is uh, called The Narrow Door. The Narrow Door. Now, uh, we're going to start in the Newer Testament. We're going to be in Luke 13. We're going to start in the 22nd verse. But before we get there, I want you to think just for a minute about the door uh, to your house, if you will. The door, first and foremost, is an entrance like an entrance into your life, an entrance into your home. But it also is an absolute barrier uh, to that entrance. So if the doorway is a way that you can enter and go into the life that is in your home, the doorway is also something that can have a barrier in it and leave you outside of that life. So it's kind of duplicitous in that sense, or at least multifaceted. First of all, uh, a door is used to prevent people from seeing what's inside your house, right? That's why you put a very little peephole that you can see out, but not see in. But your door is also the first statement that you have to all of the outside world about your house. This is why doors usually say something like the name of Life Changing Ministries, or at your home, it might say uh, the Brassos, you know, can you fit all those letters on one? No. But uh, like my home says the Stevens, sometimes it says things like welcome. So what is important is that a door can be used to prevent interaction with the outside world, or it can be used to encourage interaction with the outside world. If you're ever like Gabe Mays or like myself and had to go knock on doors to sell people things, you were excited when there was something there that was very welcoming. Because most of the time what you got was a door slammed in your face. And your doorway to your house and your life says something about you. <coughs> If it is covered in iron bars, what does that say about the neighborhood you live in? Or at least what you think about the neighborhood you live in. Yeah. If there's a sign on it that says, keep away, no trespassing, that says something, doesn't it? Well, the Bible is full of discussion about doorways. We're going to start with one of the more famous passages in the New Testament, and then we're going to work our way back into ancient Israel. And as much as we'll talk about doorways, we will eventually be speaking about your home. Is that good? Fair enough? Okay, so in Luke 13, starting in the 22nd verse, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? You know, 80% of our nation claims to be Christian. 80%. Could you see this question being asked here? Our churches have taught to the point where you assume when you meet somebody, they're saved, rather than assume they're not. And we also have conditioned ourselves to say things like religion is a private matter. And that's between him and the Lord, and who can really know its heart? Saying you cannot know someone's heart is a little bit like saying I have no idea what kind of tree that is when it is bearing a certain kind of fruit. You know what is in a man's heart by the words that come out of his mouth and the actions of his life. This is... Now, you may not be able to perfectly discern it, but that is how we should know what is in our lives. For instance, if a man says, I love my family more than anything else, but spends more time deer hunting than he does with his family, does he really love his family more than anything else? You have to be a rocket scientist to see that. But it takes a bold, introspective person to realize something like that about themselves. The gospel is a call to be bold, the forceful. These people ask, Lord, is it true that only a few are going to be saved? And what's amazing about that is the entire nation of Israel had been adopted as sons of God. They had been baptized in the Red Sea when they left Egypt, and they followed God's leading of His Spirit, just like you do, in a cloud in the desert. They were fed from heaven. This is their descendants, these people. And they say, is it true only a few are going to be saved? Listen how he answers. I mean, isn't that a pretty important question to ponder? Yeah, I would say so. Then he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. First thing that you need to know is that it takes effort. Most of our doctrine is centered around the idea that there is no effort involved. You simply believe. 
That is not true. That's not how Jesus answered this question. True faith, trust in him, is always evidenced in what you put forth effort in. You can say all day long that you believe something, but if there are no actions, your belief is not the kind that will save you. I know that's not what we hear very often, and it's not the way to build big gymnasiums. But it is how Jesus answered. It's the very first thing he said. Make every effort. So you need to know salvation requires serious effort. The next thing that he said is that the door was narrow. God is a discriminating God. Now, these days, the word discrimination carries with it a negative tone. It, it, it's bad. We're not even allowed to use it. It used to be something that was good. If you were said to have discriminating taste, it spoke of refinement. Now we've watered God down to be so inclusive that he will include even those that really didn't serve him or love him. We've watered down God to be so inclusive that if you confess Romans 9 or Romans 10, 9 and 10, whether or not it was true or a lie, well, hey, who are we to really say? That's ridiculous. The door is narrow, and not everybody makes it through it. We're not going to turn there, but in Luke 16, 16, he said, hey, man, the, from the law and the prophets, since that time up till John, the kingdom was being preached, and now the good news is being preached, and men are forcing their way into it. We need to know something. The doorway that is both life and death, death if you're found outside of it, life if you're found inside of it, the doorway that is both the entrance to the kingdom and the barrier preventing you from it is narrow. You cannot run through it in mass. Even though Constantine ran whole armies through rivers and declared them baptized in the name. Anyway, the door is narrow. It cannot occur like that. This is a very personal thing, and yet it affects the entire world. If you do not come to a place where you realize that things must fall off of you, that you cannot carry with you things into the kingdom, you haven't passed through the narrow door. It is wrong to say God accepts you just as you are without qualification. He is willing to accept you just as you are as long as you are willing to change. You know, saying God accepts me just the way that I am with the implication that you will always be that way denies his lordship and sanctification. And yet that's all that you really hear preached in mass. You know, gosh darn it, you're wonderful and people like you. I want to tell you, that's not true. Our God loves you. He, he loves you and has a purpose for you. And he will accept you in any situation that you're in. He will fight to go and find you as long as you are willing to make an effort to follow him. But if you remove effort and remove qualification, friends, what we have is not Christianity. It's not. And the people that this word was spoken to were people that every detail of their life had been dictated by the word of God, and they were still missing it. Where do you think that would place America? Because many, I tell you, will try to enter it and will not be able to. <laughs> you know, when I heard this word, I sat down, I thought about it. In Leviticus 9, 9 verse 16, you don't have to turn that. I, I almost never lie when I'm preaching. We have a story about the priesthood of God. Out of all 12 tribes, one tribe is a special priesthood tribe, the Levitical tribe. And out of all of the families in the Levitical tribe, only the descendants of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, are priests. And those priests are told there is a prescribed way to enter into the presence. You know what they did in Leviticus 10? They chose a different way, a way that seemed good to them. And our God, who we like to say is love, who we like to talk about in, in broad, flowery, glowing terms, brother, just love one another, killed them both. Why do you think he did that? Because this is the example for all the generations that would follow. Nadab and Abihu did you a favor. There is a prescribed way we must come to him. Any other way, the Bible calls un authorized fire and it will not happen it is not okay to come to god on your own terms just one of my relatives told me so oh well you know eric I, I love him just like you do i just i come to him on my own terms i said that makes you god not him 
The point's been missed, and the man is still in bars today. There's nothing wrong with being in a bar if you're there to get people saved. Or have such a limited amount of alcohol that it does not influence your behavior in a negative way. I'm not telling you that a place is wrong, but you know what it is for that man? The bartender is his pastor. The people sitting on the bar stools on his left or right are his prophets. He's the great evangelist telling the world how to fix their problem. It's a substitute. And you know what? When you are in the prescribed way, dwelling in his presence, everything outside of it looks demeaning and sickening. But when you're outside of the prescribed way, hey, there's no real standard. Everything's okay. I mean, to each their own. Who am I to say that about them? Friends, I don't feel guilty about saying it. I don't feel the smallest bit of conviction for calling error, error. Because this is what it is. And if we don't do it, who will? The door is narrow. Many people try and don't enter. Listen to what else he says. Once the owner of the house gets up and <laughs> closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. This means that there is a point in time. Romans 11.25 says a full number of Gentiles will come in, and then all Israel will be saved. Hebrews 3 says, while it is called today, do not harden your hearts. The point is, is salvation is for a limited time offer. Now, just because our church does not teach a pre-tribulation rapture, and we teach that the church will stand through the tribulation, face down the Antichrist, and see the kingdom set up, does not mean that we think that this is an unlimited offer. How many of you know that you won't enter into a wreck on the way home? Who expected there to be a wreck in their family yesterday? But there was. Who ever expects your child to be in the hospital? But this week, we had a child in the hospital. Friends, today is the day of the Lord's favor, the day of his salvation. You can be hanging on a cross right next to Jesus, and one man finds salvation because he recognizes the day of salvation, and the other die in his sin because his unauthorized fire has blinded him. You know, the idea of a deathbed conversion is one of those kind of romantic Hollywood things. Yes, it does happen, but more often than not, by the time you get there, you're so blind based on a lifetime of sin, you don't get converted. Your relatives just lie about you and hire someone who will lie about you. This is the wrong pastor for that. Don't ask me to preach a funeral if you do not want me to tell the truth. Because I find out something. When you tell the truth, people get saved. They'll get saved right there at a casket because it's one of the only times in life they face their own mortality. And staring at the face of the Him your vassal, 
and that makes you an evildoer. How evil was it really for Eve to want something more in the way of knowledge? It seems pretty innocent, doesn't it? How many things have you done worse than that? This pastor's done an awful lot worse than that. But it is an evil doer because it rejects God as God through your actions. How about that? There will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Does that sound like a celestial planet somewhere else? People coming from the east, west, north, south, taking their seats in the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God takes place on earth. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. You need to understand that God judges us by different standards than we judge ourselves. In John 7, 24, Jesus rebukes the religious community and he says, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. What do we hear the religious community say? Judge not, lest you be judged. Never quoting what's before it or after it. Just a big blanket that says, don't look at me too closely. Movie star demagogues that we can lift up and respect because we don't know them. I'm thankful for ministries that are doing the work of God, and I don't care what size they are. But it is sickening to have the idea that we can really, really intimately know each other from the kind of distances that we try to do it. All of American Christianity avoids accountability at all costs because if anybody saw with any clarity into our lives, we would feel guilty, and we couldn't have that now, could we? Our king forces us into an ever-narrowing way as we follow him so that you can be refined, sanctified. Things will fall off, and of course your flesh resists it. This is why Matthew eleven twelve says only be forceful force the way or advance the way in it. This is a difficult thing. The idea is like a sheep pen that gets ever narrowing to a single gate and they can only walk through one at a time. How many young people do you know that have walked with their parents with Jesus for years? That is a good start. But it cannot finish there. God will force you to a place where the way is narrow enough you must go through that door alone. How many will be found short and point back and say, but my mom, my dad, that's never been enough. Never. How many will fall short and say, but that pastor, but those people, but I have my confirmation certificate. I did not get my confirmation certificate in the Lutheran church. Do you know why? I got into a fist fight the day before in the class. And we rolled out onto the stage where we were doing the puppet show for the kids. <laughs> but other people that were no more in love with Jesus than I did were all confirmed. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean at all? The same little boys that were stealing wine with me. <laughs> we could squirt those communion bottles from a distance and hit each other's mouths. But they were confirmed. Do you want the affirmation of your peers or the affirmation that comes from God himself? If God's spirit does not testify with your spirit, consider yourself damned. That's the best thing you could ever do. Because as long as you sit in indecision and want others to comfort you and wrap doctrines around you like eternal security, all you're doing is insulating yourself from the searing conviction that would bring fear and salvation and trembling into your life. The door is definitely narrow. Matthew 25, 10, we're not going to read. But I want to tell you this. When you look at it, it is a parable about virgins who have oil in their lamps and some who don't have oil in their lamps and they don't know the day in which the groom is coming and some are caught unprepared and they are put outside of a door. And when they're outside that door, they say, well, won't you let me in? He says, no, we'll not do it. All of these were spoken to the people of God, i.e., the church of its day. And people were found to have missed and been outside of it. That is horrifying. 
Turn with me to Revelation 3. We're going to find some good news. And then uh, we're going to move to some other topics. In Revelation 3. Good, good. We're going to start in the 7th verse. Is that all right with you all? we start in the 7th verse? Yeah, yeah.
who cut in on you? You were running such a good race. He didn't have to talk to them about doctrine. He didn't have to ask them what had happened to them. He knew when he did not see joy, they were not living in the state that believers were meant to live in. The angels told the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. Those who possess good news are supposed to possess equal amounts of great joy. Something's wrong with Cain. The Lord said, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? He's the first man in all of history, ladies, who needed a facelift. <laughs> if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. God puts a barrier between you and sin called a door. It is only allowed so close to you on its own. Sin has never jumped on you and made you do anything. There is a barrier that is your free will, God himself working in your life between you and it. What his word does is point it out. It says that, that desire over there, that you have some distance between you and it, it's wrong. And if you don't master it, it's going to kill you. How'd that work in Cain's life? Not so well. Not so well, yeah. He got a new tattoo out of the deal. A relocation without moving expenses. New reputation. Defined the whole way in humanity called the way of Cain. When we look at doors in the Bible, there's something that God puts between us and sin. To give us enough space to choose whether or not to let it in or push it out. The idea that man was inherently sinful is wrong. That is not right. We are now inherently sinful, but man was not created that way. And even now, you have a tendency, an inclination, uh, what the Jews call an evil inclination. But no sin has ever jumped on you and forced you to do anything. We choose to do it. I said to you today, church, master sin and don't let it in. Master sin. Leave it on the outside looking in. But don't go join it. What did Cain do when he got this word? He meditated on it and then went and killed his brother. That was malice of forethought. But is that really any different than when you spend two days thinking about whether or not you can crack the password on your net nanny for your computer? Is it really any different when you're angry with someone? Let's just pick your pastor for a moment. I know that that's so far from the realm of reality it couldn't happen. That you spend a couple days meditating on how angry you are and then comes the slanderous word out of your mouth to someone else that kills my reputation? Is that really any different? See, there is always a barrier between us and sin, a choice to make, a door to open or close. Turn with me to Genesis 6. Tell me, you there? Yeah. Okay, we're going to be in Genesis 6, 16. We're talking about the making of an ark. Make a roof for it and finish it, the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. You're going to build this giant boat that is football fields long, built like a square, got no rudders, got a roof, three decks, and every animal known to man on it. But look, by the way, make a door, put it right in the middle. Why? Think about what God did in Noah's life. And not just Noah, but Ham, Shem, Japheth, their wives, eight people in all. Our God, in an effort to deliver them from judgment, gives them tasks. Tasks in his kingdom. Tasks that require tremendous trust in him. Those tasks then, as they occupy them, as they begin about the task, and think what a task they were given. The world's never flooded before. At least not in human existence. They're going to build a boat, a boat unlike any that's ever been seen. It's possible that it had never rained before this day. What do you think the people around them thought about that? But if you spend 120 years doing something, can it kind of consume your attention? Yeah. If I start building something one day and I have to sleep and carry it over to the next, I don't sleep. Our God will involve us in tasks that involve trust so that what we do is we are trusting him and moving forward, and this acts as an insulator for what else is going on around us. One of the reasons that American Christianity sins as much as it does and is as gross as it is is we have too much time where we are not busy doing something for God. How many of you have heard the uh, mother's proverb? 
idle hand or yeah, idle hands of the devil's workshop. You give anybody enough time to do nothing, and you know what? They make themselves perpetually victims in every situation. They make themselves when they're not off to war in the springtime, desire things they were not supposed to desire. So our God puts a barrier between us and sin. You learn that from Cain. Here with Noah, God brings in 716 Noah and his family inside the boat and shuts them in. This insulation occurs when we are busy about the king's business. See, because when you're doing what he told you to do, and he gives you enormous tasks, does he not? 120 years to build a boat? It insulates you from doing the things that you should not be doing. So our God doesn't just say, don't do that, or master sin. He also shows you what you should be doing. And when you're doing the good that you know to do, the bad that you shouldn't do is less enticing. You have a teenager who is disrespectful. Have a teenager that you're not pleased with their character. Give them task and make them do it. But I can't. I don't know how. Yes, you do. God showed you how. You just need to find the courage to actually do it. Give them things to do, work at, so that they can succeed. It requires that they stop playing Xbox, that they quit listening to their iPods, and actually do something. But in that action, something happens to them. They become busy. And while you are busy doing what you are supposed to be doing, you do not find as much time to do what you should not be doing. When I was 18 years old, it took an awful lot to get me tired, but I found great value in getting tired. I'd go to work, I'd run, I'd do whatever it took, because the tireder I was, the easier it was to sleep, and the less likely it was that I would be doing anything that I should not be doing. We've lost something, saints. The church is not busy. It sits on its salvation and prays for the king to come. The word says that he waits for his enemies to be made footstools for his feet. That's quite a job, isn't it? I still see his enemies everywhere. What are we doing? There's a door, a barrier that's supposed to be between us and sin, and it's supposed to be the good that you're doing. I know a flawed little Mexican that I love with all of my heart. The way God's protected him is he's given him the overwhelming task of feeding the world's poor. If he didn't have that task, there is no telling. He'd have declared war on the churches in his area and conquered them all or something. But he has a task that protects him. And it, it is so powerful, that calling in his life, that it consumes him to the point where that's what he thinks about. And when he's not thinking about that, you kind of scratch your head and you wonder what's going on. But when he's thinking about that, he's at his very best. Are you really any different than that? See, there was something that you were put here to do. Get busy, and you won't find as much time to fail. Turn with me to Genesis 19. I want to talk to you about another kind of door, the door of mercy. In Genesis 19, we see some really, really horrible things that I'm just not going to take the time to read. So we're going to pick up in verse 10. Uh, needless to say, the situation is bad. We're in uh, this humble little community called Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, the people there have uh, kind of an evil inclination. And anybody who lives among people with an evil inclination long enough is either going to convert them all or themselves be converted. That's a real <laughs> message to you in your living situation and your working situation. Are you converting them or are they converting you? See, I've been in both situations. I've taken the workplace by storm for Jesus and seen 38 or 40 employees at Bible studies. I have been taken by storm and found myself laughing at jokes and doing things that are not fit for a child of God. I've been in both situations. You need to evaluate your stand today. Well, Mr. Lot has found his family negatively affected by their choice of living environment. And so Lot has a grand solution for the mass of homosexual men that would like to rape the angels that are inside. He says, no, you can, you can have my daughters instead. And he goes out to speak with this uh, mob in verse 10. 
but the men, these are angels, the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so that they could not find the door. There's a deeper shadow and type here that I'm not going to teach about today, but I want you to get this. The door that is a barrier between you and sin, giving you a chance to master it. The door that is busy you doing faithful tasks so that you are insulated from the judgment around you is also a door of mercy. So that when you're outside of where you should be in an environment you should not be in and you and your family are in peril, our God sometimes reaches out his hand and pulls you back in. But when you make sometimes a dependence every time, you're in danger of showing contempt for the mercy of God. The fact that God reached out and rescued Lot this day from a situation Lot should not have been in, in a place Lot should not be, doing an activity that God did not tell Lot to do, does not mean that next time he will rescue him. You know how many people I've sat before and said, do not get married. And they said, well, so-and-so did it and it worked out fine for them. I have never said that to a couple where they did not get divorced quickly. And in most cases, the example that they pointed to is also now divorced. But you know what happens? We show contempt for God's mercy because people do things that are not godly, then call it God and call it mercy enough that that's just kind of what we expect. Mercy is when you are outside of where God puts you on the wrong side of the door, facing peril that you deserve for something you should not be doing, and he rescues you and pulls you back in. Mercy is undeserved or unmerited favor. But what happens when you assume that it will be merited and that it is deserved? It's not mercy at all. It's something ugly. It's not grace at all. It's something ugly. How much of the church is there saying, God knows my heart the whole way? How much of the church is in a place they should not be, doing things they should not be doing on the wrong side of the kingdom's door, saying... Well, he's merciful. He knows my heart. Mm -hmm. He does know your heart. Do you know your heart? That's the question. Mm -hmm. One of the more perplexing statements in the New Testament is that Lot is said to have a righteous soul. How does a righteous soul find himself in this situation? The same way you and I do. Mm -hmm. Bad choices. Our own bad choices. Mm -hmm. And thank God for mercy or where would any of us be? But you better not write checks for mercy to cash. Do what you know is right. Do you understand the difference? Has God ever bailed you out of a financial situation? Raise your hand if he has. Yes, if your hand's not up, you are probably a liar. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean then that you should go write a check for whatever you want and just assume that he will bail you out of that situation? <laughs> I remember when that teaching came through the church. I was working on a car lot. And the lost people came and said, there's another crazy one out there. I knew what it meant. There was some charismatic Christian throwing oil on a car, claiming it in the name of Jesus. And when we pulled their credit, they couldn't afford to pay attention, much less for the car. Everything in the world goes through the church that is crazy. Mercy is not to be abused. If you take that kind of teaching on mercy and grace to its nth degree... You get the idea that everybody, including the devil, is saved, and there are theologians that preach it. It's called universalism. And it's ridiculous. It's universally wrong. Are you ready? Yes. Yeah, I think we ought to move on. God's mercy will sometimes pull you back inside even when you don't deserve it. <laughs> Doors are both life and death. It's death if you find yourself on the wrong side of it. It's life if you find yourself on the side of it. Sounds a lot like the law that was set before the people, huh? It shows you what you should do, but it at the very same time shows you what you should not be doing. So if you do what it says you should, you find life. If you don't do what it says you should, then it shows you guilty and deserving death. You say, well, which is it? Does it prove me life or does it prove me death? Both, all of the time. Is there a part of you that needs to die so that another part can live? Yes, that is that dichotomous nature we were talking about. This is Romans 7. It is exactly what he's speaking about. And the fact that it's so little understood by men who are employed to understand it is sad. 
Turn with me to Exodus 12. I'd rather talk about your homes and your doors. Wouldn't that be better? Yeah. See, because God didn't call me to pastor America, and America is very glad. God called me to pastor you, and there's question as to whether or not you're glad, but it is what it is. That's kind of like when a woman says, do I look fat in this dress? There's only one answer to that question. <laughs> All right, are you in Exodus 12? Yes. In Exodus 12, when we think of a door in Israel, it's easy to close your eyes. If I had not told you to go to Exodus 12 and you had no preconceived ideas, and I'd say, think of a door, uh, because we are Americans, you might think of a door that looks like a door in America. If you lived in medieval Europe, you might think of a castle door. If you uh, live in Uganda, you might think of a door that's made of some kind of reed and grass. But none of the doors in the Bible are the kind of doors that we think about as doors. Because God did not give the culture of the Bible to America, or to the Congo, or to Rome. He gave it to Israel, and salvation is from the Jews. So we better think of a Jewish door. And when you think of a Jewish door and you close your eyes, you need to understand something. All doors in Israel, if they are Israeli, are completely and thoroughly stained. Stained beyond repair. Look at uh, chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 6. Actually, let's start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moshe and Aaron in Egypt, This month to, is to be for you a first month. When the Lord causes you to pass from death into life, it is like life begins again. You might even say, it's being born again. By the way, when Jesus came, did our dates start again? Yeah. Is there anybody in here counting from the Ming Dynasty? No? Anybody in here counting from the uh, Ptolemy's dynasty? Not even King Henry's dynasty. How do you number your checks? When the Passover lamb shows up in Israel, it starts our calendars over again. When he shows up in your life, it shows up again. Think about this. Well, I am 50 years old. What could you know? You are 34. Heard that one before. <laughs> heard it every year I've been alive. It doesn't matter what age I am. You were 50 years old and advanced to all of 18 months in Christianity. Even though it took you 20 years to do it, I'm kidding. 18 months, you were a toddler in Christianity. What do you mean, what could I teach you? Our clocks started over the day we got born again. Because the life we had before was really death. The first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. When you got saved, the intention was everybody in your family would get saved. Very biblical. Read the book of Acts. God knew that if he put you, the leaven of God, in the loaf that is your family, you would work all the way through it. I got a few family members yet to come, but we're working on it. We can fill up a row now. That's good. <laughs> One for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. That is an amazing thing. You mean when we find the power that transforms us from dead to alive, we would want to share it? No, we'd rather just be first at Luby's in line. It occurred to me that when I drove down the street this morning, I was reading church signs. And in addition to the 40 holy martyrs, that's all I'm going to say about that one. <laughs> Almost every other church sign had a word on it. It wasn't Christian. It wasn't Jesus. It was first. First. Houston's unique. One of the larger churches is called second. matter whether you got the Passover lamb first, second, third, fourth, fifth, wouldn't you just be glad you got it? And wouldn't we just enter into the assembly of those that are now alive and not dead? Or do you need to be the first one that entered? Friends, there's only one who is preeminent, one who is superior. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Everybody else is just trying to name drop. There is an epistle that mentions it. Greet so-and-so. 
who loves to be first. <laughs> Not mentioned in the most positive light. We could put that on our sign, huh? No, not going to. With their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. There's as much lamb as you will eat. Say that with me, saints. There is as much, much lamb, lamb as, as you, you will eat. eat. How much do you want? More love, more power, more of you in my life. But you mean I have to actually do something? I have to eat the word? I have to do something with it? Abel prayed for me a little while ago, and he got it right. It was pour him out so he can be filled. That is exactly right. We're usually praying, fill me, fill me, fill me. Why? How much water can you put in one vessel? How much water can you put in one vessel? How much food can one person eat? If it's not being digested, if it's not being poured out, if it is not doing what it's supposed to be. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames where they are to eat the lambs. Saints, I want you to understand, when you say door to an Israeli and he closed his eyes and he thinks about a doorway, for 1,600 years, blood had been applied to the same doorway over and over and over and over. Would you say that that was pretty bloody? Mm -hmm. What is the first thing you would see and think of when you walk past an Israeli door? They are under the blood. They have been delivered from death into life. What is your doorway, what does your life communicate about you? Is it the first thing that would greet somebody? If when they close their eyes and they think of CJ, don't close your eyes, CJ. When they close their eyes and think about CJ, is that the first thing that comes to mind? They're under the blood. Those are people who have been brought from death to life because this is the goal, saints. That is the goal, that that be top of the mind recognition, the first thing that people testify about you. You are under the blood. How about this one? Turn with me to Exodus 21. Let's look at another activity at a doorpost. And relax, guys. you got maybe 10, 15 more minutes. Come on. 20, 30, no, 10, 15. <laughs> Exodus 21. Tell me when you're there. Yeah. Been there. That's good, too. There is a group of people that I try not to find myself among, but occasionally I'm guilty, that yes, they're under the blood. They've been brought from death to life, but God, this walk is just drudgery. There's nothing left but to trudge on. The lonely, despairing walk of a man who has nothing left to do, but soldier on. You know what the Lord's required of me? If I know how hard this walk was gonna be, I don't know if I've done it. Well, I bet that glorifies him. <laughs> Know people that you don't want to ask how their day is? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Are you one of those people that others are scared to ask, how's your day going? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> in Exodus 21, starting in verse 4, I want you to get a principle about a doorway. Um, starting in verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free. Without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife and she comes with him, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears sons or daughters, the women and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If the doorway to your house first says, I'm covered under the blood, I'm brought from death to life, the next best thing that it could have is a piercing on it. A piercing that doesn't say, oh God, Christianity is so hard. Well, what a beautiful advertisement for the kingdom. People see you and they go, yes, I want to be one who sucks on a lemon as well. <laughs> <laughs> a 
The next thing that it should say is, I am his free will servant for life. He was pierced for me. I will be pierced for him. I love him because he first loved me. Your doorway to your house, your life, what people see about you should be not only under the blood, but I serve him of my own free will. He was pierced, so I'm pierced. He would set me free if I wanted to go back to Egypt, but I have no desire for it. Is that what we're communicating? I hope so. I hope so because that's something that begins to get people's interest. Everybody claims to be saved. But how many people live as his free will servant, willing to be pierced because he was pierced, and they burn with a passion and a fire for life? Oh, well, I love his kingdom, and I'm passionate about church, but the rest of life pulls a vacuum. <laughs> Doesn't work, saints. Life is the kingdom. Your calling is what you're doing every day. How do we think that we can go to our job and glorify God by grumbling? And come home and praise him in our calling, which is what? Praise. Your calling is what you are already doing every day. The question is not, is it your calling? Is are you doing it well? Many times I don't do this well. Mandy works with me. She has to slap me upside one and down the other. <laughs> but you know what? A slap is a life-giving rebuke. It's a kindness. It's oil on my head. Because I want to get it right. And when I am not getting it right, I want somebody to bring it to my attention. I don't want to hide in the crowd. I don't want to avoid the scrutiny of others. Judgment begins with the house of God. And if we're barely saved, what will be the outcome of those that just hid in the crowd? Free will servant. How about this one? Turn with me to Isaiah 40. Would you be happy if I only gave you a couple more scriptures? Come on. The bed of the crab, Matthew. In Isaiah 40, something else happens to a doorpost. So far we have one that is blood-covered. Then we have one that was pierced. Now we have something else that happens to your door. In Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. So good, so far. That her sin has been paid for. So good, so far. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. I want you to, to back off this translation for a minute, okay? Don't read it. I, I want you to take off your religious glasses for a minute and pretend I'm talking to you. And I said, Nick, Nick, comfort, buddy, comfort. Woo! Your sin's been paid for. I'm going to give you double for all that you sin. Is Nick happy? No, Nick's not happy at all. You're going to pay me back twice what I did wrong? How's that paid for? This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Hebrew culture. This word double for sins is kefel. It doesn't mean to multiply times two. It means folded in half because what the Israelis did, being a society that was supposed to lend and not borrow, being a society that considered their daily ethics an example of their trust in God, what they did is they posted your own debts on your own door post. And when your debt was there for everybody to see, it was kind of a social pressure to pay it. It would be a little bit like giving every one of you my credit bureau when we walked in here today, right? When it was paid... You folded the bottom to the top and drove a nail to it. So that debt is no longer outstanding. It's kefel, doubled over. It's paid. Your doorpost should say that you are covered in the blood of the Lamb, passed from death to life. Your doorpost should say, I don't serve him because I have to. I don't love him because I have to. I love him because he first loved me. I am willing to be pierced because he was pierced for me. Your doorpost should say, I am free of any debt to any man because he has paid them all. Look what else it says. The voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed 
and all mankind will see it. When you begin to proclaim the message that you've been brought from death to life, that you serve him of free will and for life, when you begin to proclaim the message that he has paid all of your debts twice over, people begin to see the glory of God. I don't know any person out there that would not take an absolvement of all of their debt. Sometimes, uh, we even did the example here one time. I think Fred told me about it, and, and I did it that day. One of the little kids came up and got it. I held up some money and said, hey, anybody want this? Come get it. And it's just a little kid. I think it was mine. Came up and got the money, right? <laughs> the reason people don't grab hold of the offer to have all of their sin forgiven is many times there's nothing in our life that makes them believe that's happened for us. See, if you're meeting a lottery winner, and you know he's won the lottery, and he's holding a ticket, and he says, hey, look, this is the winning lottery ticket for you, you will take it. But if he's dressed like a bum off the street, he doesn't have a penny in his pocket, and he says, I have a winning lottery ticket, you probably assume he's a liar. There's no difference in us. People see the glory of God when we're not only covered by the blood, when we're free will servants, and we act like we don't have a debt in the world because it's all been paid. This is why we can't walk around, well, oh, it's me, all the way down. It's why the devil tries so hard to steal your joy. It's why he works so hard to make you look like the rest of mankind. They cannot see his glory in your life like that. So, well, what are you saying, Eric? Do I put on a facade? Do I just pretend? At first, that's fine. I don't mind. We say fake it until you make it. But at some point, you need to act in trust, believing that you don't have a debt in the world, believing that you've come from death to life, and it no longer becomes pretense, and it is your life, because you actually believe it and have lived long enough to see the fruit of it. One more thing, and I, I brought you something for this. Um, in Israel, there's a store called the Jesus Boat. <laughs> uh, Jesus was probably never on the boat, but the boat itself uh, became visible during a famine. Isn't it beautiful that in life, all kinds of things become visible in droughts and famines? A treasure was found. You find treasures in your drought and famine as well, I promise it. Stop grumbling and you'll start to see it. So they named the store the Jesus Boat because they got this old first century boat and they put it under uh, lock and key and you can go and see it. And because many Christians would like to go see it, uh, they sell things to Christians. But one of the more popular items that's happening now can be found in Deuteronomy 6. Turn with me there. I got you a gift from Israel. In Deuteronomy 6... <laughs> I want to tell you a little bit about the gift that is Israel to the world. Uh, 22 members of our church joined with the church yesterday that brought some 20, 25 people. And we went to a museum to learn about the early roots that are shared by Judaism and Christianity. Friends, Judaism and Christianity were indistinguishable because all of the believers in Jesus were Jewish for a long, long time into the first century. And they did not become distinct and separate from Judaism until after the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 132. There was a long reason for that. I teach on it all of the time. I'm not going to do it this morning. But I want to say this. If you grow up in authentic biblical Judaism, the scripture takes on a whole new light, a whole new richness and depth. And one of the ways that I thought that I could bless you with this is to include something in your life that was a daily part of Jewish life and show you what it would mean to you today as an American. So in Deuteronomy 6, we want to start with, uh, let's start with the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may Increase greatly in the land, flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength is quite the order, isn't it? 
Uh, it's difficult to be that passionate, that consumed, that filled by anything. With all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. How many times have you been playing with your kids but thinking about something else? It happens to me all the time. I notice it when they say daddy for the 47th time and I'm just now responding. How many of you have been sitting in church but thinking about playing golf? Very seldom are the three parts of one human being all in complete unity for anything. And yet this is what God expects of us. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. And if you're going to have this kind of unified focus on the king of kings, you're going to need lots of help. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You find a similar passage in Deuteronomy 11 that goes into more detail and promises certain blessings because of this. If you're going to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, with all of your being is what it's trying to express, you need reminders all around you all of the time, things that spur you towards that. This is not legalism. This is not religion, not when approached lightly. You know what this is? This is the innocent child who wants with all of his heart a what would Jesus do Christ as a reminder to live holy. This is the 13-year-old girl that wants a promise from that she is going to promise to be holy until the day she meets her husband and enters into a marital covenant. This is the new believer that makes a pledge and puts bumper stickers on his car, throws away all of his old clothes and buys Christian t-shirts. This is an effort to surround yourself and baptize yourself in the commandments of God. And what the Jews did is they took these. They took mezuzahs and they put the commands that God gave Israel. It's called the Shema, and we, we know usually the first couple lines. I, I quote them to you in Hebrew a lot. But to them, it encompasses their purpose on the earth as a community of people. For them, the Shema is not just... Uh, an affirmation of God's lordship. It's not just a declaration. It is why God put us here. And what I thought is, if believers, if believers learn something from that culture and put in their lives, not just a scripture passage, but why is the Brasso family on the earth? Why are the Kenshins on the earth. If you sought God and got the answer to that question, because Ephesians 2 says he prepared good works in advance for you to do. If you put the direction, the good works, the calling that you believe he called you to do in something, and you saw it every day, it might remind us, it might cause us to dwell with a little more fervor upon our real purpose for being here. And then where would you put something like that? glove box or your car? How often do you take that out? Only when you get a ticket, right? I know where you'll put it. You'll put it in that special drawer in your kitchen. Well, you only go there when you're looking for batteries, and they're all dead anyway. We'll put it in that back closet. Yeah, where your exercise equipment is. Where would you put something like this? Well, Jewish Halakim says it must be in the upper one-third of the door frame. So specific, so legalistic. Well, where do we put it? Anywhere people live. Well, do we put it only on their houses? We do not have an interior room of the house except the bathroom. And only see things. How many times have you left the house after being a quiet time? How many times are you at work and think, why am I here? This is like hell, Lord. It's divine of your presence. Every day. So think about this. What if every time when you left your home, you realized the reason you were leaving was to go out and master sin? What if you realized that the task that you were performing, like Noah, were to show your trust so you could be insulated from judgment? 
What if the times that you find yourself not doing well and God saved you anyway, you saw as mercy? What if when you walk out the door, you saw it as I'm leaving the refuge of God to go do something for Him? Does that mean when you come home, you won't be tired? No. Does it mean when you come home, you won't be beat down? Not at all. Does it mean you might not ever get discouraged? No. But when you come back to your home, you know what you'll see? Your purpose for being beat down, for tired, for discouragement. You will see that you were bought by the blood of the Lamb and it's marked on your door. You will see the pierce mark where you promise to serve Him with all of your heart for all of your life. You will see the place where your debts were doubled over on the front door to your house and you will see your purpose for living in a mezuzah. And you know what this ought to do? It makes it worth it. It makes everything that happened to you outside your house not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. It makes it worth it. Friends, is that Jewish legalism? No. That is the best and oldest kind of wine. That is the kind that people crave and want. This is what fills our spirit and soul. So I bought you some. Some of you already have them because you went on our very first ministry trip. Those of you that don't, I have one for you. It's from Israel. Made in Galilee of olive wood. And I didn't want to get you just any mezuzah. Normal mezuzahs have the Shema in them and they have a Shin on them, which stands for El Shaddai. I didn't want the Shema to be in yours because you're not Israel. Your purpose is not the same as Israel's. You have a purpose for your family. You have a purpose as a Gentile in the body of Christ. And I didn't want to get you one that just had a Shin on it, the name of God. I wanted you to understand how it is that you are in God. So we take the fish, the ichthus, which stands for believers and Messiah, who are going through the Star of David, the Jewish king, and have made it right into the Spirit of God and His presence. That's what that graphed in symbol stands for. You Gentile believers have become believers in Yeshua. You've gotten into the Jewish king, and by His Spirit are carried in the presence of God. You don't have a mezuzah on your door because you are Israel or you are Jewish. You're grafted into a Jewish king and you admire the principles that he laid out for all humanity. So I have these for you and I encourage you to let your front door speak a message about you. From this point forward, when we have guests in our church, this is what we will give the guests in our church because their first impression of us needs to be that we are under the blood, that we are pierced, that our debts are paid, and that we are directed by God himself. And that's what the mezuzah says to me. Y'all stand to your feet. We will pray. And then anybody who wants one, guest, member, we don't have members, family, whatever it is, if I go home and nobody's taking any, it's going to hurt my feelings. So don't take them if you already have them because that will deprive our next guest of having them. But uh, they're here for you. Y'all ready to pray? Yes. Y'all yeah. love Jesus? Yes. Nobody's seriously mad at me, huh? Because if you are, I'm going to leave while you pray. And Matt can deal with it. Isn't it good to have an associate pastor? Mighty God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have taught us from your word. We thank you that you have laid out culture that surrounds us, that fills our heart, soul, and mind with the, the principles of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a time where these things are being clearly understood. You are our king. And more than anything, we want the doors of our lives to speak a message to the people that are around us. We don't want to be known as the miserable ones. We want to be known as those who have been set free from death. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I didn't tell